1: hello and welcome to off the beaten track podcast it's another week therefore it's another episode i'm your host Stu if and joining me today is matthew and richard of minty seminal art popsters minty um i mean this was this was one when i got an opportunity to to speak to them i couldn't believe my luck it was like i saw them i saw them support pulp um in the in the in the mid 90s and and then since then um, i've kind of gone down many rabbit holes um looking at the the genius that was lee Bowery, which obviously we talk about um in this podcast as well um uh, you know a, a, as well as some of the seminal uh club club nights that um that matthew has uh, put on and we we go into it and i mean the, the actual conversation itself um went on way, way longer than the conversation you're gonna to hear today. Um, purely because of of my um open mouthed wonder uh at just what an incredible promoter uh and 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 yeah, just just fascinating stuff. And uh and when we finished recording we recorded this one in Lockdown, by the way. Um, Matthew was like I think that was a bit too long. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to edit it. So I was like, okay. So I handed over the editing to the guest, and, uh, which was g- completely unique and never been done before. Um, so thanks ever so much for, for um, editing the podcast uh, th- yourself. Who's, who's ever had a guest that's done that? Um, and, and yeah, and there's going to be uh, an incredible mixtape um, put together um, by Minty to accompany... Uh, this episode as well. So uh, when you just keep an eye on the socials because we'll um, we'll be sharing that as well. Um, thanks ever so much, um, Richard and Matthew for for editing and, and guesting and and you're you're in for a real treat with this um, because what an insight into um, uh, an exciting weird and wonderful world uh, of Minty. Um, before we get on with episode, big thanks to Scroogeus Pip and everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network. Thank you to 76 for, I guess, not editing, but just mastering uh, and, and, and topping and tailing it with this uh, intro that I'm doing now. Um, and yeah, if you uh, like this and it's your first episode of listening to off the beaten track podcast, go and have a look in the archives because there's 120 or so episodes with some of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, DJs, producers, go and, go and have a rummage in the archives and see what you can find. Um, and there's also a Patreon page, um, where we put a standalone episode up each week as well. So you can support the podcast by supporting that. Um, well, you can find out about everything at offthebeatentrackpodcast.com. Anyway, let's get back to business. Please enjoy Off The Beat and Track Podcast with Minty. I've got an announcement. Save Our Souls Clothing, www.sosclothing.co.uk. Why am I telling you this? Because they're our official sponsor. Yeah, that's right. do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code BEAT15, B-E-A-T-1-5, and that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk Official sponsors of Off The Beat and Track podcast. Let's get back to that podcast. off the beat and track podcast on the distraction pieces network with me stew with him hello and welcome to off the beat and track podcast and sitting opposite me today via the means of skype uh, from old compton street uh, i've just been uh, privy to a look out of the window uh joining me is matthew and richard of minty hello hello, hello. how
2: are you doing yeah, good, thank you. Yes, good. just saying that we're, we're really enjoying 28 days later at the moment. <laughs> it's the only zombies around are the police, though, so... All, all the zombies are wearing fluorescents, so you know you know when they're coming at you. So are you finding it really all right, the, the whole kind of lockdown? I think that what's happening to our economy and our politics is very worrying. It's going to have a severe fallout. I don't think we're being particularly well led through it um but apart from that i mean yeah i mean i'm I'm enjoying the 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 deserted streets from a from a cinematic point of view
3: what about you dickie yeah i'm enjoying it but it's a bit uh the sky's falling in what's gonna happen in the future you know
2: richard's very interested always in what's going to happen to the aesthetic as far as what what's the cultural meaning
3: i mean yeah club music must be dead for a couple of years i would have thought which i disagree with completely
2: i think the one thing that kids are not going to be doing is keeping distance i imagine we're going to see youngsters crammed in like sardines jumping up and down
1: i think it's really i think what we're going to get from this lockdown is i think you're going to get some incredible stuff where some creatives are going to be creating some absolute magic but you're also going to get people i think we'll, we'll look back and there'll be some amazing stuff come out is i think there'll also be a lot of shit as well i think a lot of people will start making stuff and there's a lot of and, shit and,
2: already yeah got a very good the point. only limit to it is how much how much storage space google has you know google seems to <laughs> google seems to be the, the general silo of the planet so they, 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 there's always room for another layer of shit at google headquarters
1: hmm well, I always start this podcast um, with the song with the greatest intro. And this yes. is quite quite unique as well because this is only the second time, I think, I've ever done an episode with more than one guest. So oh. um, it's nice to have two. The, the last time I've done that was just before Christmas with um, Nitze Um And so...
2: Love, love the modern... My... I was even going to put Joining the Chant down as one of my... Oh, I really?
1: Just... Yeah, but I just thought,
2: no, I can't. I was thinking about the club track and I just thought, no, it's too... It was sweet
1: listening to it again. I mean, I, I love I love them and I love it, and you know, of course. So, um, Matthew, do you want to tell me your your song choice first, please?
2: The one I chose was the Hugo Montenegro Macarthur Park. It is uh, instrumental and very swinging '60s, and what we would call doo doo lady, ba 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 ba, being the Pearl and Dean advertising soundtrack from I don't know what years Pearl and Dean used it from and it it seemed to go on forever like up until the late 80s I, I seem to remember it so I love it as it's very symbolic of the sound that we went into after Acid House we may come back to this but I did a club called Smashing that started in 91 I started this club in 91 with Martin Green the DJ Martin Green Um, Because around about 1990, everyone thought, oh, God, you know, no-one's going to be listening to house music in two years. Because, of course, we come from a generation, as do you, where musical fashion and style and aesthetic, well, well, cultural aesthetic, changed every three-year max. So, of course, we'd all been dancing to house music since, really, 86, 87. And although we could see it was growing... It was just getting boring. People were doing the same thing over and over again and it was getting what, we, of course, in those days, we would have called math. We were all, always very much from the school of big character... We'd come out of the 80s hierarchy and house music, the re- most refreshing thing about house music had been the democratisation of, of social life and the, the democratisation of the dance floor in many ways where those 80s hierarchies had been broken down. And so the character of early Acid House had been so much about rebellion and, and a fight for your right to party, but because of the Criminal Justice Act and the clampdown on the orbital parties, as soon as it moved into the growth of the kind of official rave scene, you know, it's getting a bit old hat. So we moved much more into this period of
1: kind of beat, beat Nicky, rare groovy... Would this have been around the time of Eddie doing Blue Note and... F-
2: yes. Yeah. Yeah, there was the Blue Note, so I mean, there was that scene, that Hoxtony scene was developing... But it, there was this in-between these beatniks, it was where the psychedelic end of Acid House then crossed back over into the kind of, into 60s you know. Yeah. And it was very good fun and we all grew, um, we all grew goatees and smoked lots of pot and wore dark glasses and more caftans and it's still kind of interfaced with the more psychedelic end of the, of the house scene but we were moving away from that and I got to know Martin Green and had really loved his music and he would made us a, a mixtape that we were playing constantly to get ready to go out and it was it was a very eclectic mix um of soundtracks and jizzy kind of stuff some elo and Bollywoody kind of disco stuff. Just all sorts of great tracks, really, from, from the history of music. And so that, Hugo Montenegro, was on that mixtape. And I just loved the memory of the Pearl and Dean theme, and that being the intro to every great film that I'd ever seen. And so it became one of the smashing anthems really early on, because the whole atmosphere of the club was also kind of, you know, poking the balloon of nightclub pomposity um so the the whole club was set up to be the uncoolest club in london so we would play theme from black beauty and all gallop around (laughs) the dance one it was at maximus which held 800 people and we'd only get like 100 people in but the guy who ran it was so great he always gave us free champagne and i mean there's lots of stories about smashing but it, it was set up as to be this very um, anti-core club. And, of course, you know, as these things go, five years later, there were queues around the block of celebrities wearing sunglasses, at which point I closed it.
1: That's, that is a wonderful answer. <laughs> Richard? Uh, I'm I'm stuck after that.
3: Um, I just chose my track, Breakaway, by... I've forgotten his name, Steve.
1: I've got it written down there. I've
3: got... So I can't remember
1: who it's by. <laughs> I have one moment. Yeah, uh, is by uh, Steve Carmen. Oh yeah, it's just, I just chose it because it's like two long
3: minutes of anticipation build for about a thirty-second bit of song within the end. <laughs> so it's all intro, I think, building excitement, anticipation, and
1: and so I, I, I'm interested to know as 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 musicians and as you know as djs um how you approach when you make music like the how much emphasis do you think there, there should be on, on an intro and like is it is it i mean as a dj you know intro can be everything but necessarily you know there's there's edits that are made purely for djs with you know huge intros to to let you mix them and and, and things like that four bars max of course. <laughs> no,
2: unless there's a theatrical intro, and a theatrical intro is fine, <laughs> right. you know, a big flourish into something. But fuck that. If a DJ can't cut, drop in, don't play yep.
1: it. So, how important? How much emphasis? You know, in this talk me into you, how much? How much emphasis was put on? On was radio a consideration? When, you know, when we're talking about sort of pop music,
2: I not Richard may have a different answer. I think you know. Was it to you? To me? or I will just say. Nothing is ever a consideration apart from what makes what I like that 's it, as far as i 'm concerned, as an artist, I do it purely to please myself, um, and I think any artist who tries to please anybody else in whatever genre is on a hiding to nothing.
3: No, I think the opposite I there you go <laughs> yeah I think you have to I've it 's only singers that say that and. I want the pop song, really, and that means it has to communicate to somebody. So that, but I think you should have the audience close to you, the people around you. You should entertain them, and if you can do that, then it might spread.
2: So I've run about ten clubs, six of which have been notable for one reason or another, um, and they all they all are very different in genre. Everything from. 20th century classical music all the way through to industrial noise core and you know electro to rock and Richard has been the DJ at nearly all of them because so Richard and I although we disagree on almost everything seem to agree on almost everything as soon as we shut our mouths and just play the music and yeah. so some of the clubs have been successful and some of the clubs haven't been so. The, some of the most unsuc- the, the most unsuccessful with the population was Harder Faster Louder, um, but to me it was the most successful artistically. It was it, it, to me, it's my favourite club. I don't care if people came. I, I liked it being empty. It was it was it was just a wall of noise. It was difficult for, it was painful and damaging to people to come to. It was designed to be both painful and damaging, and physically
1: and emotionally and mentally. So, what was what was the driving force to do that? Um, Matthew, uh, to, to, to create something that you um, are aware is going to be unpleasant for people.
2: Well, it's like, why do people go on a roller coaster? It's unpleasant, but it's also exhilarating. It was designed yeah. as a fairground ride, really. People were locked in. People were locked in. Yeah, they're dicky. So, what do you think about Harder Faster Louder? I never asked.
3: Yeah, it I, really. I, I, lo- I loved it too, especially when we had roller skates at Harder Faster Louder. That was good. It was so so you liked
2: it. It was it's yeah. got to be the favourite thing we ever did. Yeah. It was the most extreme. So, but that wasn't designed around people liking it.
3: No, but there was a, a scene with Alec Empire and GHR Records round the corner. A lot of people were into this Heart of Castle music,
2: weren't they? There was a scene. There was a good. It, 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 it dovetailed with the death metal scene and the hard industrial end of jungle. I mean, it was really the Prodigy that came out. of It was that that Prodigy production sound which really came out of that. Atari Teenage Riot had been on tour, had been supporting Prodigy. We thought we were on the cusp of a new pop music, which was just uh, kind of chiselled out. Of a granite wall, rather than projected into, rather than notes being projected into silence, the approach was much more for a sculpture, chiselling shape out of a of a solid wall of noise.
3: But also, there the lots of people like Mister Ed that were making, though it, we weren't getting the music through commercial channels. It was, we were know, knowing lots of the people that were making the
2: lots music. of music came in by cassette. We had yeah. people from all over the place so sending the music
3: on cassette. So it was kind of popular responding to each other it was
2: niche (laughs) i think niche should be the word for it but it was funny because it was the first thing i did after smashing so smashing had turned into the brit pop brit art vip room of london by this point, whether it was Damien Hurst and Tracy Emin or the Oasis Boys and, and and Damon and Madonna would turn up and demand a VIP room and we'd all laugh at her and throw her out. And it, was, it got to that point. But by this point, the audience were used to me just going up and slagging them off on the microphone. And I went up and I just said, you know, I want a steamroller. I wish I could drive a steamroller through this club. And I came off stage and somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, ooh, I may have something for you and um played me still. i think it was an alec empire track and i was sold i was just like yeah got it fine shut it get rid of all the pop stars and all the celebrities out get all of the the filth the industrial hardcore filth from the death metal scene and the really hard industrial jungle scene and the noise skull you know the, the noise artists were different to them and you said so yeah, it was Yeah, but it was a niche but of course on the opening night The press and the celebs all came because I'd shut this big, successful club and everyone thought it was insane. And I opened my new club, of course, it was the new place to be. They had to be in by midnight, else they weren't coming in, so everyone was excited and in by midnight. And... uh, And we did uh, an hour's piece of music for people to come into. You could only enter between 11 and 12. The doors were only open for an hour and when you walked in, it was completely silent with all of the house lights on. With people kind of sweeping up and going around going, shh. (laughs) <laughs> it was completely silent. And, <laughs> uh, and all the house lights were on. And, then, and it was in this place called The Office, wasn't it? It was great. We found this venue that had just been done up, and it was like a lifestyle place. And so the, the bar was one huge slab of concrete. It was a bunker. It was a, we couldn't have found anywhere better. They had just discovered polished concrete. We managed to get all the furniture out. And so there was nowhere to sit. There was no ashtrays. So everyone was kind of turning up in their glad rags and thinking, you know, what's going on? I was nowhere to be seen. There was no music on. People were sweeping up, and there were people milling around on rollerblades and roller skates. It was a roller disco as well, of course. But it was free with wheels, so people came with BMX bikes and Tesco trolleys. And, and it was down the stairs, so people had to bump whatever vehicle they had down these stairs into this club. And the venue let us do it. was amazing, the venue let us do it. But then every week there was a... Build up, we called it the sound ramp. We would um, commission a sound artist each week to do a build up from zero to nosebleed over a half an hour period, a sound sculpture. And so as this would unfold, the lights would begin to dim very, very, very slowly and with the, the rumbling. So usually we'd always go, we'd always want the subsonics. Well, the first week, they this changed in subsequent weeks, but on the opening night, it was packed, of course, because everyone was there to, 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 for my new celebrity nightclub. And um, all the bar was packed with drinks. We didn't know this was going to happen. But, as, the, as of course, as the rumble began, all the drinks started... Moving down the bar, smashing until so there was this huge pile of glass at the end of the bar, and then, as it as, the, as these subsonic frequencies built up, the bloody optics started popping out from behind the bar. the balls were coming falling off the shelves, and everything was everything was on the move it was a theatrical touch we hadn 't planned and, um, and then it would build up and build up and build up until people were shouting over it, and it was just be a. <laughs> And then it build, 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 by which point it'd be pitch black and lights would be starting to flash and the noise would just be becoming really oppressive and then physically painful. And then I'd come out with a megaphone, right, that's it, that's fucking it, go, 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 go! And this hardcore drum and bass would kick in and the whole, all of these kind of grungy kids suddenly exploded into this mad frenzy and all the fashion people were pinned against the wall, terrified, screaming. And on all the flies it said wear earplugs and wear protective clothing because the, 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 the skaters would start circling. It became like rollerball it was fabulous. Yeah. The skaters would start circling on the dance floor it was this fucking concrete bunker and they do the old um the sticky tag thing that would make a line and so the p- people at the end would be going at like 30 miles an hour and then they'd let them go and people go shooting off to the bar oh it was hilarious it was brilliant
1: that sounds fucking incredible
2: and um or, of course all of the fashion pack also didn't realize it at midnight just as this sound got Beyond funny. We came out and locked all of the doors, locked everyone in, <coughs> so no-one could get out. And, of course, it was all based on totalitarian imagery, as all good industrial events are. You yeah, know, it's funny the
3: time Andrew insisted on bringing a motorbike.
2: Well, there was the mo- that, was, that was what blew my ears, was playing the motorbike, where we miked up a motorbike. The, the venue hadn't pointed out either that, actually... Carbon monoxide poisoning in a basement with the motorbike being revved up. And I couldn't work out why everyone was going woozy and falling over, including me. <laughs> so it was just it was wonderful, wasn't it, Dickie? Yeah. It, truly wonderful. But not popular.
3: <laughs> <laughs> not
2: what you call popular. <laughs> okay. Sorry, there was that I Tra- you know that was, that was a completely off point. Oh,
1: it's the best thing about podcasts is when they just pinball everywhere. Track two. Um the first song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you?
3: Uh, that was when Mary Poppins came out, when I was about four or five years old. And it got to the end, and then when it went into Let's Fly a Kite, I just cried and cried for, like, two or three hours afterwards because Mary Poppins was going away, and I was supposed to be happy at flying a kite. And it just seemed so tragically or <laughs> like, Deserted emotional. for the first yeah,
2: time, Dick. Yeah. You were deserted by Mary Poppins. I was only about
1: four or five, but... <laughs> what 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 do you think the emotion was um that
3: they're, they're they've she's come into their lives to make probably the dad was a bit off he's into his work and wasn't really family man a bit like my dad and she sort of brought the family together magically and then disappeared up into the sky and then they're they're sort of happy, but not magical. It's the losing the magic, I guess. Happy, sad. The, the, you could just kind of fly a kite and be happy with that. When you could have had Mary Poppins, <laughs> I just cried and cried <laughs> <laughs> all the way home in the car. I remember. Did you feel deserted? Home. Yeah, maybe. But that's for children, and for no, young children, and not that's being satisfied my... with yeah, just flying a kite. You wanted more. Yeah, when you could have all the <laughs> magic bags and things.
2: You were just upset because <laughs> you didn't have any showbiz, although you just had a bloody kite. I a bloody kite for my birthday.
1: <laughs> Brilliant. And Matthew, what was yours? <sighs> Mine is Marianne
2: Faithful, as tears go by. My dad used to play the Rolling Stones version in his Aston Martin as we drove to Wales. My dad was a trendy interior designer in the 60s. I was almost going to say Slade, because my dad designed Slade's interior, the studio, and we'd, he'd play the music at home, and, um, uh, and my mother used to hate it, so, but I loved it. I found it so exciting, especially that track, Are you ready now? Are you ready now? So Noddy was also kind of around at that time and would pick me up and swing me round, which, of course, I thought was marvellous and my mother thought was very below us. My dad and Noddy Holder go out and get completely hammered. There was that whole period of, like, I don't know, the, the late 60s to the mid 70s where everyone just seemed to be pissed. I don't know what it was, but that whole kind of world was just soaked in booze everyone just drank like fish. I mean, my dad wrote off like Mm. six cars, completely pissed. It was normal to go and write off a car, darling, Ah, you know. (laughs) Everyone was roaring around completely and utterly drunk all the time. Um, So we bought a house in Hay-on-Wye on on the borders of England and Wales, which is now where the Hay Literary Festival is. And um, we would drive up. And we were slowly kind of moving there, kind of to base ourselves there, so when I was about four. And As Tears Go By was one of the songs that would come on in, in, the, in the car. We used to play the Rolling Stones version of it. But Marianne Faithful was one of the other people that was around Hay-on-Wye. And a handful of kind of celebrity types, but Marianne Faithful was definitely one of them. We used to come around to our house and they'd all get pissed. And the men would all go in one area and the women would all gather in another area and drink and drink and drink. And I remember this scene with Marianne were going completely crazy. She'd obviously heard the Rolling Stones version and was furious that my mother was playing that and not her version, which afterwards was all we ever played was her version. <laughs> so, so it was a big to-do the song itself I find very beautiful. The song itself touched me emotionally. I remember looking out of the window, driving up to Wales, and it being winter. And having a deep, deep sadness of being old, older than I am now, being of looking back and... Completely understanding it as a, as a young child and completely feeling like I was at the end of my life looking back over the, the time, you know, the, the sadness of, of, of looking back at a life. But I remember being weirdly displaced into, like, an elderly consciousness and that having a huge resonance on me. There was the drama. I mean, the funny story is obviously the kind of Marianne faithful drama. But actually, the real emotional connection was this deep sense of having been here before and knowing what it was like to regret a life. Seeing myself as a child on the swing, but also seeing myself as a very elderly person, looking at a child playing and and, and encapsulating both consciousnesses simultaneously. It was very, very odd. It was like an out-of-body experience, really. Wow. And the drama
1: was just a plus. (laughs) (laughs) hello i've interrupted the podcast again haven't i sorry it won't take a sec all i want to say is the songs that we're talking about in this podcast if we can't play them it's just because of the regulations regarding playing licensed music and such so if you want to hear the songs just go over to spotify and search off the beat and track podcast and you can listen to all the songs because i've put playlists up for each of these if you can't find it on there i'll send links on all the social media accompanying each episode so you've just got to press that one button and you can go through and you can enjoy all the songs that our guest picks anyway i'll shut up get back to the podcast see you on the other side well i guess we can move it forward a couple of years now for track three um I, I, I'll ask you both. Um, the song reminds you of your time at school. You go. Um, I I put Cherry Vanilla because um,
3: a, a bunch of friends from school went to see her. Uh, she was a uh, famous as an Andy Warhol part of the factory scene. And we were just really excited to see someone above Andy Warhol's factory. And her backing... When we went to see the gig, the backing band were the police... And we thought they were a bit rubbish. And we spoke to them masters because they were milling around and said, Can we get backstage to meet Cherry Vanilla? And they, they were very nice. And they took us backstage to meet Cherry Vanilla. And, uh, and they stayed chatting to us. And they, they, they had their single, which they were selling on 7 inch vinyl. So we bought it off them because they were so nice and chatty. And that Stuart Copeland took our pictures. And uh, so I'm surprised Cherry Vanilla didn't really. Police eclipsed her, really, but um, I love I love her expressive voice on that record of Foxy Bitch. How old would you have been then? Um, 16 or 17. So actually, Did you I, enjoy... I probably oh, just left school, but it was with school friends. We went to see the gig.
1: Did you enjoy school?
3: No, I hated it.
1: Why
3: was that? Um... It was too alienating and big as a big comprehensive with and I was from a little village previously with a little school, which I really liked, so we moved to this It was too if you felt lost in a bigger environment and you couldn't make a pilot
1: sure I get that. get that um Matthew
2: um what song did I put down? There was a load of them.
1: You put uh, eight oh, days day. Day Hazel, O'Connor. Hazel O'Connor. Oh my
2: God. Bam, 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 bam. He, he, he just got upset. I went to five or six schools. I can't even remember. I think I've lost count. I got deported from most of them. Um, I loved primary school, like you. Know, I was in a small Welsh village, of course. Then I went to Hereford Cathedral School, which is near hay and which is a boarding school, and studied music. What did you want to be? A pianist. Or in show business. Hey! Was you a confident kid at school? Kind of, yeah. Was you a show-off? Yeah, well, yeah, was. Well, yeah. I got in trouble, and I left that school. I played the theme from Star Wars on the cathedral organ and got into all sorts of trouble. And I was in trouble anyway because I'd been telling lots of fibs and I was doing all sorts of occult shenanigans. But very Harry Potter... My whole, t- my whole thing was, you know, the world of levitation and seances and Ouija boards, uh, you know, that whole 70s obsession. What well, what's that whole thing with levitation? Do you remember it with your fingers? Yeah, of course, the, you put your fingers Yeah, there. P- yeah. picking people up with F- so That whole world, I was in the world of, of, of Ouija at that time um, and,
1: you know, obsessed with the Bermuda Triangle, et cetera, et cetera. Kids, kids don't do that anymore. It was a rite of passage, that Ouija board thing for me and all my mates. It was like when you got to second school, it was like, right, we're going to do a Ouija board, rammy mate's ass. And it doesn't seem to happen anymore.
2: <laughs> I don't I think everyone's everyone's been brought up on I don't, I don't they must do because there's all of those ghost adventure programmes and yeah. oh, they did the Ouija board and letter. I mean it's so much a part of Charmed, those kinds of TV shows and filming you know, they're all shows, they're all good, they've all got bloody demons crawling out of the Ouija board these days, haven't they? I
1: know. We need we need to find out if there's a Ouija board app. That's where the money is. Do a Ouija board app. <laughs>
2: At church school, so they weren't best pleased when I discovered the idea of the black mass. Um, so, it, you know, I, I, I cottoned onto Satanism at quite an early age and thought, oh, this, this, this looks like it'll piss off the rector. Um, so I was turfed out and I ended up in a big comprehensive like you did, which it, it, I ended up in a car. We went from one to another and um, couldn't settle. Obviously, my mother sent me to my first day at Comprehensive dressed in my school's rowing colours. My previous school's rowing colours. I've never been to a Comprehensive school before. How did that work out for you? Well, you know, I, was, I, I, I certainly received a thorough a th- a beating. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and, and that beating, and that was my second year of school. Uh, so that beating carried on for the full first term really, from new, from going to school to Christmas. I went to two or three different comprehensives, which, you know, I was... Pretty, I mean, the, all the confidence that I had previously um, been showing in, in directing black masses and uh, dancing around the, uh, the uh, dormitories in hooded capes <laughs> all of a sudden was kind of knocked out of me very quickly, um, which it does tend to be. And... Um, Uh, It was very, it was really traumatic, actually. And then (laughs) Dad had had to come back to London to work. Dad had gone to work in Wales, but uh, that hadn't worked out. And as the oil crisis hit, we lost everything. So I then went, you know, then I grew up like everyone else, pretty much in poverty. Dad was back in London. And so to get rid of us, he would give us money and uh, send us down the King's Road. And I stumbled upon the Great Gear Market for the first time and saw punk freaks and new romantics so this is about 80 this is 1980-ish, 1980 ish 198081 and heard the music uh, i think i heard divine divine was going to be one of my tracks as well but um, it all just kind of mushes up into one big uh, euphoric explosion of disco beats hairspray hair dye the smell of barrier makeup with mixed with the patchouli oil because somehow those kind of punky psychedelic people were still around there was somehow the kind of hippie thing was dragging on as an undercurrent through all of this gray blusher and concrete and it was it was a very but it was such a heady mix i just i remember walking to the great gear market and just thinking oh i'm home this is it this is it and I went to, around the same time, I went to the cinema and I, on either Kings Road or in Piccadilly. And I managed to see Hazel O'Connor breaking glass. It changed my life. It completely changed my life. And for the first time, I saw, saw a story of somebody getting to build a, 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 a community. Find a community through their music, through their art, through their self-expression, with outfits, with hair and makeup, with this wonderful music which I absolutely loved. And there was the scene at the music machine in um, that became the Camden Palace, and Philip's salon. And I'm pretty sure Mike Nichols and a few other people that I now know were in this scene, sitting on this, on the stairs. And I was just like, I have to know those people. I have to know those people and i went on to know them all the five pounds i was meant to spend on badges at the great gear market i spent at the hairdressers at the end and they laughed at me when i even in those days having a decent hairdo was like 30 or 40 quid which just seemed like incredible
0: Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping and that extends to their outdoor collection
2: But they gave me this kind of fuzzy pink mohawk and I seem to remember that I was still wearing flared jeans with a brown body warmer and wide-necked 70s shirt with a pink mohawk that I just brand new from the great gear market. Well, that's, that's quite a combo. <laughs> talk about one foot in each era and... um my mother opened the door, fainted, just went bang, fainted. I mean, she hated Noddy Holder, what can you say? So she, she, she went bang, she was straight on the floor. They, they couldn't touch me. They were just literally stood there screaming, like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, pointing and screaming. And I found that... And then they, and we had moved to North Devon, so I was actually... It's really weird. I'd ended up, after being in school in Hereford, my mum had had to get a job because we were so broke. She could only get a job in North Devon. We'd moved to North Devon. And this is where I was getting dragged around all these comprehensive schools, being beaten up in schools in North Devon. And I walked in. I went back to school after the holidays with this pink Mohican. By which point, I'd managed to find myself a black t-shirt and some some black trousers, which I w- also wasn't school uniform. and uh, and this invasion of the body snatchers just seemed to carry on as I walked to school people were stopping and screeching in their cars and pointing and screaming as I walked through the school gates everyone turned around and pointed and screamed as I went into the classroom everyone pointed and laughed and screamed but nobody hit me not one person hit me and I thought oh you like this hairdo? wait for my next one and of course uh, (laughs) the hair got bigger the makeup got bolder it was just, then I was just, it was just, uh, you know, then of course I discovered Susie and, you know, the Susie eyebrows went on. I was to the point where I was getting up at five in the morning, six in the morning to get, it take me four hours to get ready for the catwalk into school. Just, to, you know, to, for the rea- the reactions got more and more. I was suspended. I had the police come round to tell me to dye my hair. The social workers. I mean, it was just, I mean, the whole thing was just exploded into this ongoing social drama of my hair and makeup. The whole world seemed to revolve around what my next look was gonna be and how outrageous and disgraceful and disgusting and it was marvelous. I just thought this I can't so of course you know every day was a new look. <laughs> just to see how so much I could wind them up. So breaking glass was really the trigger to that. The eighth day was such a I and mean, it just the 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 drama of it the the theatricality the quasi classical nature of it hazel's voice I just you know i love i have since got to know her a little bit, but before mm. Susie it was hazel, she was my girl crush, and then it was Susie, and nobody ever came close after that
1: well i I guess looking at um your selections for um the next track um it's probably in and around that time um and so for track four i asked what the first song you remember buying from a record uh shop was
3: i mean it's not really the first one but it's the first major journey to a record shop to get the record i mean the first one i probably bought was alvin Stubbs' dust my Cuckoo" or something when i was 14 but in when i was 16 17 i i heard this record shop had buzzcock spiral scratch in stock and it was a huge I just remember the huge journey to get on several buses to get to Andy's Record Shop in Cambridge to to buy the Spiral Scratch EP then all the way home again another hour's journey on the bus back home because I wasn't at home when I found out I was at someone's house and it was like several mu- bus journeys away and How so, did you know about it though? I don't know maybe I ran I was
1: going to ask that exact I question <laughs> I
3: don't know but I did find out I was at someone's house near Huntingdon and I found out. Maybe I rang the record company and said, "A record shop, and said, have you got this in stock? But and how did you know? Did you heard it on John Peel? Or? No, I hadn't heard the record. I was just waiting for it to come out. So you can't remember maybe, maybe my friend had said, oh, I saw it in that shop. I Anyway, it, took a, it was just a huge journey to get it. What and year I, was it? Probably 77 or 76. I can't remember. Hmm. And, and I was thrilled when I played it. It delivered everything i was worth the journey. But it wasn't really oh. the first record I got, but it was the first big journey to get a record. It's
2: funny because that whole punk thing, because I'm slightly younger, I'm like a, di- a disco generation younger than Dick. So a disco generation is about five years. So I remember at boarding school, somebody with a sex with um, a Sex Pistols album. And I just thought it was a bit tasteless <laughs> I didn't find it exciting at all I found it tasteless
3: a sudden new idea was sweeping the the land um
2: but I suppose it must be when it coincides with hormonal release completely the experience I had of Hazel Alcona <laughs> was you know it must have coinc- Just it just happened to me that's what coincided with that release of puberty or that massive rush
1: so looking at a uh, 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 sort of 76 77 spiral scratch and you saying um the, the 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 difference you know being five years between years um that
2: might be a bit more
1: <laughs> like that <laughs> but I, I, I guess your choice um at matthew was one of the most I, I guess exciting records of that time your first record you bought
2: Fade to grey. I was almost hesitant to put it down because it's almost such a cliché, because it's so iconic, certainly to our generation. But you can imagine me doing looks, going to school. I just kind of discovered the dress-up thing. I discovered the post-punk new wave. I was in it. I, w- I was in it in my own mind. I was, in, I was in it in North Devon, in my own mind, In you know, dressing up. Seeing Steve, I mean... <laughs> That was it. I had to have that record. That was everything. Not only was it about the record, I saw who I wanted to be. When I saw Steve and I saw the video, of course, the video blew me away because it was one of the first, after Ashes to Ashes, which I also really loved, Ashes to Ashes had a huge impact on me, but I didn't rush out and buy the record.
1: Because Steve's in the video today, isn't Steve's
2: me? in the video. Ashes to Ashes gave me the feeling of being nauseous with excitement but there was something about the look that looked too much like a costume I loved the sound of it I loved the production I found it thrilling and I loved the video style and the looks there was, it, it touched me but as soon as I saw Fade to on my head was spinning I was, doing, I was doing an exorcist moment I was so excited it was like I released every fluid in my body simultaneously and ran to the record store. Whereabouts? Where did you buy it? Barnstable, North Devon. And I remember some, like, rocker people in there kind of looking down their noses at me. And I remember taking it and turning around to them and just... I've would had some crimped number going on on my head. <laughs> and just turning around to them and holding it to my chest and turning my nose up and just looking witheringly at them. I, I am ice! <laughs> it was, it was, I just, all at once, I was, I was at the Blitz. By this point, like many of us at that time, if there's a guitar anywhere near it, it's out. O-U-T. I used to like OMD, when I first heard the OMD stuff, then I thought that one of them had a guitar. I was like, ugh, vile. <laughs> but to me, it, again, it was a premonition. It was about, I'm going to be a club promoter. It was more than just, I love the makeup, I love the sound, I love the synthesizers, I love everything about it. I love the way it pisses, it's pissing people off in society. I just I love absolutely everything about it. But this is also my entire career. And, and was like. it pissing off? The skinheads in town didn't like the fact that I had blue hair, jelly boots, and oh. blue lip- matching blue lipstick and eyeshadow. The punks didn't like it. And the mods didn't like it. But it was so... Do you remember how tribal... Certainly in small towns, it was so tribal. Mm,
1: don't massively. pretend you didn't
2: know how tribal it was. You're a fashion designer.
3: Uh, um, mm, I don't...
0: You in London, In London, it oh, in London. Seem, no, I
3: wasn't in London. I, mean, I, was, I was in fucking Barnsley. Yeah, in London, it wasn't... I mean, they, between... Nothing was as tribal between the characters of Blitz, like Steve Strange and Boy George and the...
2: So, well, this is where it gets interesting. So, of course, I'm clutching my Steve Strange to my heart. (laughs) You're there, in the middle of it. Yeah. Yeah. Working for Vivian Westwood, cutting patterns for Vivian, knowing Malcolm. So, yeah, tell me what you're saying, that George and Steve and everyone were all at each other's
3: throats. uh, The competition and the ruthless (laughs) woman-upmanship. I mean, put any little tiffs between skinheads and from new romantics to the shade, I think.
2: I mean i went hunting steve strange i was on a steve strange hunt from that moment it was, well, i think it's an
3: amazingly clever lyric from someone who was promoting themselves as dressed up and getting all this press for dressed up and to then to say we'd fade to gray yeah it just seemed i still think wow how did you come up with that idea for that lyric to counter didn't mitch sing it isn't it Mitch's voice?
1: Uh, I'm not sure there was, there was all sorts of stuff, isn't it? I think that you know, Rusty had a, a, a thing to say about it all as well, didn't he? I'm not too. Uh... I
2: don't really know Rusty very well. But I recently spoke to Rusty, and I liked his new music he was making. But I went to the Camden Palace and being turned away because I obviously looked about twelve, and I was crying on the on the on the pavement outside, and this big dame in kind of new romanticy powdered wig and hoop skirt turns up and did old fairy godmother and um put me under the hoop skirt and smuggled me in and i went my first nightclub scurrying under a crinoline
1: wonderful
2: and then i got inside i met frank egan legendary figure of the underground south london squat scene they had a group called Radical Drag. Yeah. And they would go out in bad drag beards and lipstick and wonky wig when you would get killed. They were going out to art fights and would go into really heavy reggae clubs in the middle of the day in Brixton. So that was kind of their thing, was frontline Brawling in the daytime, piss in Brixton and in Drag, anyway. That'll give you an idea of the kind of people. So, I met this one of the, one of the kind of the leaders of the pack, this creature with this wonky wig and ill fitting dress. He's like, Who's the child? Who's the child? And I was going, Oh, is Steve here? I just want to meet Steve. Take his fag out of his mouth, put it on the floor, stir <laughs> up and go, You don't want to meet her. You don't want to meet her. I can please, please. <laughs> OK, if she wants to meet Steve, let her meet Steve. And this Frank Egan one took me by the hand, dragged me up to the bottom of the boxes <laughs> in the Camden Palace, went barging in, and then <laughs> in really a cowboy look, which <laughs> even, which I was like, why is he wearing a cowboy hat?
3: It's Clint period.
2: But it was cowboy fancy dress. I mean, anybody who knows anything knows that when you do a look, It was war. It was aesthetic war. You took your life in your hands when you went out. I couldn't put disappointment with this experience. I was like, oh, my God, I'm disappointed in the outfit. And he came up to me and was trying to kiss me. Of course, I was, you know, young. So this thing's now kind of leering at me with a sweaty face and a cowboy hat. And Frank Egan then steps in and goes, you fucking touch her. I'll fucking smack you, you old cunt. These two fishwives now hammering at her. My entire world is crumbling and Frank just grabs me and goes, told you you didn't want to meet her and they dragged me out and I was like, what, "What? what happened? <laughs> was, I don't understand. What's wrong with him? Ah, Coke girl. And I just thought, how much Coca-Cola must he have drunk? <laughs> and I didn't touch it for like 10 years. <laughs> how much Coca-Cola must it take to, to lose your style?
1: Well, I guess while we're talking um, Coco and, and, and Cameron Palais uh, and, and, and Clubland, track five, the song that soundtracked your year's clubbing.
3: in. Um, I guess it's Love Attack by Ferrara for me, which just represents the most exciting... It came out in like 78 or 79, I think, before clubs were really... But it still retained the excitement of what I want to hear from going out to a club. Uh, something that really. Ah, wow! I've got to go. It just it thrilled me each time I does, heard
2: it. It marks that moment, doesn't it, where discos turned into nightclubs. Because mm. the punk scene wasn't really. It wasn't clubs, was it? It was much more gig venues.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: And there was that moment. I mean, there was the, the Barry night at Billy's. Was that be- that was before Blitz?
3: Yeah, before Blitz, before Three Flanged Blitz.
2: And so, but Studio Fifty Four in America was still seen as a disco. Yeah, because the night what we knew as nightclubs kind of started within the bodies of the dead disco.
3: Hmm. I don't understand the difference between nightclubs and dead disco.
2: Okay, to me, there was the whole period of the discothèque with disco music.
3: Saturday Night Fever.
2: Saturday Night Fever, and it was those bodies that we inhabited as nightclubs. So to me, there was always a difference between a disco, a party, and a nightclub. The nightclub is much more exclusive. It's like a stamp club or a... You don't get train spotters at a stamp club. It's made for people who are into anaesthetic. What what, what would the venue, disco venue, be at the time?
3: Sombrero in um, Kensington High Street.
2: The Blitz wasn't like going down to the Sombrero in Kensington High Street. It didn't have a strict aesthetic... No. so But that's the difference between a nightclub. Does that make sense? Yeah. So your track, Love Attack, really symbolises that shift of nighttime music between disco, because it's still very disco, it's still got the four beat, but that exciting, energised, darker synth sound is coming
3: forward. And it was that electronic sound that led the nightclub. I mean, I suppose I feel love did the same thing but and that came out in 77 middle of punk and it sort of stops you dead thinking wow that is something yeah. to watch out for but then love attack really hasn't lost its power for me
1: which i feel love maybe has and so matthew your songs come a few years later
2: i only chose that because i couldn't show i mean it's just impossible yeah i did 25 yeah. nearly 30 years as a promoter and from every club there's a classic What's that you've got there? For get some brandy.
1: Brandy. Some? Wonderful.
2: Oh, I haven't had a <laughs> drink in weeks. Thank you, darling.
1: <laughs> Lovely. Cheers. So, what are you? Because you sent me two over. You sent me. Um, you sent me LFO. Um, and uh, um, uh, smashing, smashing with a, a brick. brick.
2: And yeah. so, really, those two tracks were tracks: the LFO track, and hit it with a brick. To me, it's what is. Nightclub attitude. You know, it's cod. Minty actually means cod. So, Minty was gay slang for being... Off. off. Yeah. yeah. Snooty. Oh, she's a bit minty. And what's interesting, important to say about them is neither of them are 4B. I only point this out because it was like the tribal battles between the punks and the goths and the rockers and the mods. For me, there was a tribal battle between house music... And then what became Britpop or Grunge. So house music to me was really a vehicle out of the 80s hierarchy, so the very strict social hierarchy. Yeah. And so I loved it. I adored the democratization of it. I I adored the fact that those people didn't get it. The people that had run the 80s club scene weren't involved. I remember going to Schume with George, Boy George and Lee Bowery. George took Lee and I there, and Lee was in full face sequins, and I was in a prosthetic lipstick. I was about seven and a half, eight feet tall with a huge prosthetic lipstick growing out of head, a big rough platform boots. Lee was in beautiful hand sequined Michael Clark look. The boy George was in his Boy George outfit. Yeah, it was brilliant on the door. Jenny Rampling went five pounds each, <laughs> and George went, "How dare you? Don't you know who we are, dude? You know." I know exactly who you are, five pounds each. And Lee grabbed me by the hand and went, George will pay. <laughs> <Got to laughs> dragged drag me in. <laughs> but we got into Shum. And I remember it was quite low ceiling area of I mean, I Shum. We were all crammed in in these ridiculous huge outfits with smoke and this flashing strobe light. And all these kids dancing around with basically tracky bottoms on those horrible lilac tracksuit bottoms. I loved the music and I I just, and I loved the atmosphere. And I just looked at me and Lee and George just stood there looking like fish out of water. And I just thought, it's over. It's over. We're done. It's finished. It's through. And I went home and I just threw everything, all my makeup down the loo. So, so, so house music really emancipated me. And at that moment, I also started directing pop videos for a lot of the house acts. So, it gave me huge opportunities and a huge sense of freedom and, 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 and wonder. And then, By the time people started taking E and coming up to you like a golem, they were all like golem, gurney golems. (laughs) I love you. Oh, I love you. And i go, fuck off, I don't even know you. I took it once, once in my life. Fortunately, it didn't go with my metabolism at all. So I could observe what it was doing. And anger was always so important to me this opposition to society whether politically aesthetically emotionally the opposition to the mainstream had always been so fundamental to my view of myself and the world and what i was doing and to and by that point the world of nightclubs which was central it was my chosen medium as an artist i saw myself as an artist and the nightclub was in fact a medium and I ha- I just grew to loathe the whole house music scene because I thought it was completely fake. Yeah, and I thought I mean I still think they put a record on in 1991. And I said, I haven't fucking taken it off. Oh, do you remember when we did the Lux? There was a there was this kind of art space called the and we'd let off all those fireworks. And we'd done a show down there, like a noise industrial noise core show. And the finale was a load of outdoor fireworks set off inside. And so, the, the, you know, the whole place was full of smoke and there was all, they, they the fire alarms going on. And then, anyway, we got thrown out of there. And I was in uh, some kind of utilitarian mini dress. So where can I get a drink? Trade. It was, must have been late, went down there, and I, was, I had my megaphone, because I always used a megaphone with Hard of Arse Lad, and I was marching up and down the bar at trade, kicking people's drinks on, going, Eins, zwei, drei, vier! Eins, zwei, drei, vier! Can't you faggots count more than four? We just come from this world, of this wall of kind of avant-garde noise, and I was going, you fucking faggots, you can't count more than four? And kicking people's drinks into their faces. So, and, you know, of course, I got dragged off the bar and beaten up and thrown out by the security. I was on a one-man mission to destroy house music. It didn't go very well, but um, I was so furious about its monotony and, and blandness and tiresomeness. So, mintiness was something that kind of kept coming back. Even though when I thought that I had been, I had been saved from the horrible 80s attitude, it turned out it was actually running through me like Blackpool fucking rock. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, but whilst we mention Minty, so um, th- th- this has been facilitated um, uh, for for uh, Paula.
2: Pensioners on PR—that's what
1: it's called. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell, so tell us what's happening in the world of Minty then.
2: We're relaunching Minty. Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: Who would have thought?
2: We did it because it's twenty-five years. Lee died New Year's Eve, 94, 95, and so 25 years since losing the real leader of the pack, um, it was time, it was time to take stock, it was very painful to look back, that whole period, there were so many people were lost, you know, through through the 80s we people don't talk about it much that that period was traumatic as well I mean that's the other thing is that people forget is that people were dropping dead around you you know and when people talk about taboo and what taboo was as a nightclub and what the gang was the bullying the 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 violence but the death this was on the fucking nine o'clock news, this stuff. We were the celebrities that people gossiped about. You know, when people say, oh, nightclub world, you know, this strange rarefied world. No, you know, remember Steve Strange got to me in North fucking Devon. The people I knew then came to know in nightclubs were huge international global pop stars and fashion designers and filmmakers and writers. The people who were at the clubs were international stars. For a brief period, for about, you know, eight years, London nightclub world was the fiery furnace at the centre of global aesthetics. And that's why I chose nightclubs as my art form, because I understood that with 200 people in a basement in London, you could change the world. And I learned that from Steve and I learned that from Lee. It's really important when we're talking about this stuff to try and get some context which is very often forgotten which is it mattered it was it was life and death it mattered we meant it and we died lots of us putting our vision in place
1: track 6 A favourite song from an artist from your home county? Devon's not really
2: my home county,
1: but I chose Muse. Just because I, li- I
2: like that Muse track. Yeah. We can talk about the tension between electronic and rock music. Because at some point, at Smashing, in the 90s, I discovered the guitar could make some interesting noises. I discovered that I loved powerful guitar. You know, I rediscovered Pink Floyd and great, and great great guitar Bands and you and Dix was playing the guitar, so then, and then I found out that you were playing the guitar.
3: Well, I, I did. I tried to when I first moved to London in '78, I got a college grant because they were giving grants those days. And I bought a Fender Stratocaster, but I just was hopeless at playing it. and I didn't really get round to it, really, really improved <laughs> till I was 30. 30. I managed to get a whole song, <laughs> your whole song. <laughs> When, when I started working with Louise Prey. Richard was the house band. When we started
2: Smashing, you and Louise, you, you were in a band with Louise Prey, who was this kind of it girl, who was like a model, and, and you became the house band, and you were playing the guitar. So everyone was kind of doing pub rock. So we, we, we kind of just all went into this kind of bull and pump style pub rock scene, because the fashionable people hated it, hated it, because they all thought, you know, the Jean-Paul Gautier people wanted to listen to, oh, shushi house music. People were very angry that we were doing it because it was so naff, it was so wrong, it was just so wrong. But Lee came in the jigsaw, there's a a Fergus Greer image of the the black face with the big padded jigsaw headpiece and the jigsaw kind of dungarees, huge as ever, and got me by the hands and was spinning me round on the floor of Maximus. And it was a really magical moment and I was loved, of course, I was, you know, in awe of Lee. Lee was... Did you meet Lee?
1: No, no.
2: Very rarely do you meet a genius in any field. But Lee had the vibration of greatness. He was a star. So I'd always, always wanted to be... ..engaged with him in some way. But you had wanted to start a band with him at Taboo, hadn't you? We had
3: started a band and we wrote three songs together in Taboo. Because we'd seen a lot of them. What were the songs? We did one called Young, Young and Silly, Hanging Out in the City. <laughs> um, I can't remember the rest. But who um, else was in the band? It was Judy, Judy Blame. It was Judy Blame. It and, was John John Richmond, Barrett. and the fashion designer, John Richmond. <laughs>
2: That's supergroup. Um, super group. We thought
3: 80s super group. We'd just write some songs and it would just happen, like it did for Alana Pillay with I've Got Pistol In My Pocket Baby.
2: I used to come and sit where I'm sitting right now and... Um, and Because when Lee had just started sitting for Lucien Freud and so he'd be round here in the afternoon because he had to get to bed early because yeah. Lucien liked painting early in the morning. And so it was always the afternoons, wasn't it? Yeah. And so I used to come around literally every afternoon. The launch of Smashing Life, the first ever Smashing Live, we were the first promoters in Madame Jojo's, on, which was a drag club, had been a, a club travesty. But they had a fantastic stage. And, um... So I came around and said, oh, yes, you're headlining. Your new band's headlining, it's Minty Band, you're headlining, Lee. And they went, what? What? <laughs> we don't have any songs. And remember you were going, oh, we do what, what are we going to play? What are we going to play? And I said, well, you must have something. I said, well, it is a drag club, Lee. You can always mime like a drag queen, which, of course, has a red rag to a bull." And um, so there's, there's a big, there's all this, what are we going to do? What? And I said, well, you know, it has, it's, it's, Smashing's a rock club, so it, it has to be a rock band, and Lee said, well, what do I know about rock music? And I said, well, you know, you'll find out tomorrow. Your bands will be waiting for you at 2pm in Kensal Road. I'd already thought I'd got a band line. i have got the drummer, bassist, rehearsal room, everything all lined up. I said, see you at 2 o'clock tomorrow and you'll find out. So that was our, fir- our first big band gig. And uh, Lee did with the Sheila Tequila, Orville, do you remember? yeah. I wish I could fly. I wish I could fly way <laughs> up in the sky. That was wild, that was in the set list. I yeah, think. I do so
1: wish I, I could fly. Yeah. I, I, I yeah yeah like, Oh yes, I do. I do. yes, I do. I wish I could fly too. <laughs> so why? So is it is it because twenty five years you've decided to?
2: Yes, because it was twenty five years since Lee died. We've been trying for years to get a Lee album together. We've got five unreleased Lee tracks that no one's ever heard. Good ones. And then a pile of half finished bits and bobs. Because Lee used to sit round here, right here. Yeah. And, um, and and, you and Lee you do would freeform work, jams. do freeform yeah. jams. So we've got some lots of jams. Really interesting jams. It's really interesting to hear. But it was all recorded on your Task Cam. Yeah. And it was Trevor Jackson. I bought Trevor Jackson's um, Task Cam. Okay. So. Um, after Lee died, we put together a, a, a large performance art group called The Offset and put a, together a kind of performance art collective, and we did these nights called The Mint Tea Rooms and had anybody who wanted to explore, explore making sound, really. Adentox came out of that. Adentox X formed. And polystyrene. Polystyrene was in it, yeah. All sorts of people came through it, and Aidan Shaw, the porn star, Sexton Ming who's a poet, really interesting people. Ron Athey, the, the body artist. But it was out of those rehearsals that the band kind of came back together because we'd block booked this rehearsal time. We thought, we let's take a couple of hours and just kick around some ideas musically with Nicola and me doing vocals. And uh, it was great. There were some really great ideas. And I... Wanted to change the name. I said, "Look, if we're going to start a new band, that at least change the name." So, we argue to this day, don't we, about that? Yeah. We still argue quite aggressively <laughs> about that to this day. I haven't, got, I haven't got to the bottom of it in 25 years because you so. joined because of Lee. Because you,
3: yes, yeah. and you, yeah, and you, and Lee had a, and I, I'll just call it postmodern ideology. Well, but this is another fight—the
2: <laughs> legacy of postmodernism. Mm-hmm.
1: The the last track is the um the, the track where I ask you to um recommend a track that that people may not know.
2: The offset was was very much this kind of gang show. We've got an offset album, and this next track, London Broil, was the lead track. So I met this queen the most. Miserable, <laughs> miserable, misanthropic person I'd ever met, who I just fell in love with because it was so miserable, and was making kind of Casio synth music on um, on cassettes, and I just said I really, really want to do something for you because you're so fabulously horrible. And we were talking who's your favourite bands, and he said the Soft Cell, the early Soft Cell had been you know really influential, and I was like oh my god, me too. I said I know Dave Ball. Let's do a track together with me, you and Dave. So we did, and that's my last track. It's called London Broil and Potatoes. That was going to be the first track on the Offset album. That never came out, that we hope to release one day. But... um, It then became the lead track on the Cashpoint album, which was released much later on. You know, many years later we did Cashpoint as a club. And... Again, I wanted to make and There were so many fabulous bands around Cashpoint that I made this compilation album. So Doris was one of my absolute favourites from The Offset, who then became the lead, the, the lead track on the Cashpoint album. You haven't, heard, you haven't even heard it. It's a kind of bridge between the 80s, Cashpoint, and Harder, Faster, Louder, the noise call. It's, and, wow. and produced with
1: Dave Ball. I'd love to hear that.
2: We'll, we'll send it over straight after
1: that'd be great that'd be great and which uh, was your tune um, if you get a chance to turn someone on to something they may not have heard before um, I, I love this track
3: Ethel Me Plough Queenie and I'm surprised to find it is on Spotify so oh, it's such a great track it's, it's a swear words so that they're really visceral you want to sing along and swear with them um, fucking bitch cunt fucking death Queenie death I, chose. Um, I first heard it at the dance version at Heaven and I didn't, I thought, what is this track? It's amazing. And I asked Lee, I told Lee Barry that I heard this track and he said, well, ring the DJ up. And I said, I can't ring the DJ up to find out what the track is. It was Martin Confusion, the DJ. and so He said, he phoned, got the phone out and dialed the number and said, here he is. And I said, oh, what was that track you played that goes fucking death, fucking? And he told me it's Ethel Meat Plow, and I went and bullshit, but it's fantastic. It was hugely influential to Minty as well, actually.
2: It was influential to Useless Man, I'd say, wouldn't you? Would you agree?
3: Yeah, especially the, the visceral quality of swearing. I don't know, forbidden words. i are...
2: said say that Ethel Meatplow track really reminds me of a time when our society, the underground alternative society, had been ravaged... We'd watched our friends dying horrible deaths in front of us. Mm. Brutal. It was a horrible way to go. And that Dick's track has the energy of that time very well captured. A roar of fury in the face of losing some of the most brilliant people on the planet. But on a positive
1: note It's a great track. (laughs) OK, well, that, that's a perfect place to to end this. So if people want to find out about the stuff that you're doing with Minty...
2: We have an email address, which is mintymusichq at gmail.com. I'll say that again, mintymusichq at gmail.com. I've got a Facebook, Glamour, Matthew Glamour. I have a personal Facebook page um a spotify we've got a spotify artist profile so the music's going up on there that's minty obviously we were li-
3: lined up to do gigs glastonbury we had glastonbury
2: paris. we had paris we had also yeah no we were on tour we we're about to start yeah. touring and the show was going to be great it was going to be a big audio visual show which we'll still do i mean if we live we want, we'll get through this we'll be the last one we'll get through this one
1: of course
2: we'll live we'll do a show
1: wonderful thank you so much it's lovely to meet you it's absolutely. It's been an absolute pleasure and, a, and an education as well. I've, I've learned so much more about some of the clubs that I never thought I'd know about. And it's, it's, it's been fascinating. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. There you go. Minty. I've just done a podcast with Minty. Um, yeah, I just hope for, for those that may not have been aware of, of the works of Minty and, 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 and the club events that, that Matthew's done and... And just the genius that is Lee Barry as well. Just go 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 on YouTube and, and, and just absorb as much as you can because uh it's it's incredible, it's weird, it's wonderful, it's it's just yeah. Just go and get stuck in because you're gonna you're going to like what you see. Um, okay, we're back next week. Um, thanks ever so much um, for listening. And please, if you want to help this podcast, subscribe. If you just subscribe, then um, each week you get a little episode popping up on your listening device. So um, thanks again, and I will be back next week. Bye-bye. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I've butted in yet again. I just want to quickly tell you about this magazine. It's called Bible. Now, Pod Bible is the new essential guide to podcasts. It's put together alongside Spotify and ACast, and it's a one stop shop to tell you all about the podcasts you maybe know about, but definitely about a load of the podcasts that you probably don't know about that we think you should know about. I mean, in the first edition, there's interviews with Adam Buxton, interviews with Craig Parkinson, and there's features on Jade Adams, and there's just an abundance. Of information about so many exciting podcasts that are out there. Also, Spotify have given us these amazing little codes. So, if you do get a print copy, you can just turn on your Spotify on your phone, scan the little code, and it just automatically opens up the podcast on your listening device. How good's that? If you haven't managed to get a print copy, then just go over to www.podbiblemag.com and read it online because the digital version is all over there and it's all free. So every other month there'll be a new edition out. So go and have a look and support us on the social medias as well. mag.com It's Off The Beat and Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network with me, Stu with it,